Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Um, let me open us in prayer. Lord God, thank you for your word. Again, minister to our hearts continually. You give us ears to hear what you have for us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I got a question for you, and I want response. Uh, what is the greatest movie ever? What's that? Adam's Family? No, 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 no. Braveheart? No. Sound of Music? No. Nope, 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 nope. One more. What? The Godfather? No, 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 no. The greatest movie ever is Rocky IV. I didn't know if you know this, but um, critics who know anything agree that Rocky IV is the greatest movie ever. Matter of fact, uh, I loved Rocky so much as a kid that my friend, my best friend for my birthday, gave me a, a video cassette tape. You know what those are? The please be kind and rewind, those things, right? He gave me a video cassette tape of Rocky IV because it is the greatest movie ever made. In case you have not seen Rocky IV, uh, in Rocky IV, he is going up against this monstrous Russian boxer. And this boxer had just killed his friend in a previous match, Apollo Creed. And so Rocky's going up against this guy who's about two feet taller than him. So he is in Russia, and he is uh, fighting this ginormous Russian boxer who is, uh, who is just a dominant force. And the whole crowd is cheering against Rocky, and they're yelling at him and things like that. And then, and then, and then in the final round, uh, Rocky is just getting pummeled. He is getting beaten to death. He is cornered. And then there is the great reversal. The great reversal where, where Rocky starts, you know, body blow, body blow, head blow, head blow. And the Russian is falling back and keep, Rocky keeps punching him and punching him. And he's, he's drifting back. He keeps punching him and punching him. And finally, the Russian falls down and, and Rocky wins the match. And it's amazing. It's the greatest movie ever. In today's passage in the book of Esther, the Jews are in need of a great reversal. They are in a foreign territory. They are being beaten down. As we will find out in today's passage, there are at least 75,000 people in the empire that hate the Jews. And there has been an edict made for their destruction in the, in, on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. Okay. And so they are underneath this edict of death, of genocide. You can imagine what it would be like. Every birthday might be your last birthday party. And so they're under this and they are in need of a great reversal from God. We saw this great reversal begin last week in Esther chapter 8 as, as the king gives Mordecai his signet ring to make a edict that allows the Jews to defend themselves on that very day, the 13th day of the 12th month of Adar. 
And so now we come to the passage today, Esther chapter 9. And between Esther chapter 8 and Esther chapter 9, there are six months. Six months between the edict that Mordecai has put out and the day of destruction and the day of self-defense for the Jews. And so for nine months, they have been preparing. They have been gathering weapons. They have been forming alliances with other Jews. They have been strategizing how they are going to defend themselves. And so we come to Esther chapter 9. And the nine months are up. The day has arrived. It's game time. It's time for the battle. And the question is, will God pull off the greatest reverse, or one of the greatest reverses in human history? Will God rescue his people? Or will they be annihilated? And in this passage, we'll see a progression of God reversing things to keep his promises. The first is this, main point one, is that God reverses the fear of his people. Again, remember, they are scattered throughout the Persian Empire, and there are thousands of people who hate them. There is a bounty on their head. If you kill them, you get to keep their plunder. And so they are naturally afraid. Afraid of the day that is coming, the day of destruction that is coming. This is until God brings a great reversal of fear. If you look in this passage, you can underline the word fear. It appears quite a few times. I'm actually going to back up to the last verse of chapter 8. And this is just after Mordecai's edict allowing the Jews to defend themselves. But uh, Esther chapter 8 verse 17 says, And in every province and in every city... Wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, meaning that either Jews who were hiding their identity were now more forthright and open about their identity as Jews, or people were converting to Judaism. Whichever is the case, why were people now identifying themselves as Jews? Well, it continues and tells us the reason. For fear of the Jews had fallen on them. That is the people of the Persian Empire. If you remember back in Esther 2, we saw that the Jews, such as Mordecai and Esther, had hid their identity because they were so afraid of the repercussions of identifying themselves with the Jews. But now the tables are turning. There is a great reversal happening, and the fear of the Jews is now falling on the people of the empire. It continues in chapter 9, verse 1. Again, this is game day. This is when the battle is going to happen. Verse 1 says, Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. This word mastery can mean to have dominion or power or rule over something. Verse 2, the Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the province of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them. Why? For the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews. Why? For the fear 
of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. These verses detail for us a great reversal of fear. Instead of the Jews fearing their enemies, their enemies had begun to fear the Jews. And the reason for this reversal of fear is because the Jews now had an advocate in power. Mordecai became the second most powerful man in the empire, a man who had dominion over the officials of the empire, who had favor with the king. And so because of this position of power, their advocate Mordecai, fear had been reversed. Instead of the Jews fearing their enemies, their enemies now feared the Jews. I mean, imagine if you were a kid, or if you're a kid, just imagine this scenario. You're at the playground, maybe Pamperin Park, a nice big playground, and a bigger kid comes up to you, a bully. And they come up to you and you're scared because they're bigger than you and they want your money or they want your food, whatever it might be. And, and so they're telling you to get out your money, get out your food and give it to them. And so you're afraid. And so you start to pull out your money. You start to pull out your food and you start to hand it to them. But at that moment, your dad walks in behind you. What happens in that moment? There's a reversal of fear, right? <laughs> no longer are you afraid but the bully is afraid. And why is the bully afraid? Because you now have an advocate that is more powerful than both of you. This was a Jew situation. They were afraid of those who were out to get them until they had an advocate with great power, Mordecai, who was second in charge of the kingdom. You see, Christian, God is continuously reversing our fears because we have a greater advocate than Mordecai. And he sits in the throne room of God advocating on our behalf. First John 2 says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Did you know that Jesus is advocating for you, Christian, right at this very moment? Have you seen God reversing the fear in your life or, or, or is he in the process of reversing fear in your life? Fear of death by corona, fear of God's rejection because of your ongoing sin, fear of people's opinions because of your insecurities. You see, Christian, in Christ, we need not fear such things. And the reason is because the Lord Jesus serves continuously as our advocate in the greater empire. He is continually applying his finished work on our behalf. And so we no longer need to fear death because if our advocate is at work, it means that death will only bring us to greater life. We no longer need to fear out sinning God's acceptance because Christ is continually clothing us in his righteousness and we are accepted before God forever and for always. And we don't need to fear the rejection of people because in Christ we have been accepted by the one who matters most. God reverses the fear of his people by means of a great advocate. And it brings us the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. And so first, God reverses the fear of his people. But secondly, God reverses the destruction of his people. Again, remember, the Jews have an edict of death out against them. 
Uh, and then Mordecai issued a second edict saying that the Jews could defend themselves, but that doesn't necessarily mean the Jews are off the hook. I mean, there's still 75,000 people, as we'll see, that are going to come and attack and try to kill the Jews. And so they could still perish. But will they? Let's look. Verse 5. We'll read all the way down to verse 13. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed, bear with me, Parshandatha and Dalphon and Aspatha and Poratha and Adaliah and Eridatha and Parmashta and Arisai and Aradai and Vizatha. These are the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request, it shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it pleases the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. Esther must have received some sort of intel that the enemies of the Jews were going to continue to attack them even the day after the edict. And maybe they could they could pass it off and make it look like it happened on the day of the edict. But, but the enemies of the Jews in Susa, the citadel, the capital, they were going to continue to attack the Jews the next day. And so Esther asked for a 24-hour extension, which is very wise, but only in Susa, the city. That will come in and be important later. But the other thing that she asked is for the dead bodies of Haman's sons to be hung on the gallows. This too is a reversal. If you remember, Haman wanted to hang Mordecai's body on a gallow to embarrass Mordecai, but also to say to the world around them, this is what happens to those who defy Haman. But now Esther wants to reverse that. Esther wants the, the enemies of the Jews, the sons of Haman, to be hung on the gallows as a billboard to everyone in the city of Susa. This is what happens when you mess with God's people. Don't mess with God's people. This is what's going to happen to you. And so she wants them placed up there as a billboard, as a warning, as they continue to defend themselves that second day. Verse 14. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar. That's the extension day. And they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. You know, when we read this staggering statistic that 75,000 
thousand people died in a day. We might be tempted to say, I thought we had a loving God. We might be tempted to say, man, God is cruel. He is harsh. He is vindictive. But you must keep in mind Haman's original edict and Mordecai's original edict. You see, in Haman's original edict, it allowed the enemies of Jews to go and to attack the Jews and to kill the Jews and to genocide the Jews and to take their plunder. But Mordecai's edict was different in this way. Mordecai's edict did not allow the Jews to attack the enemy of Jews. It only allowed them to have self-defense, to only defend themselves from those that have come to kill them. They could only kill those that were coming out to kill them. And so 75,000 men came out to kill the Jews to steal their wealth as plunder. And yet God, God graciously reversed the tragedy, reversed the destruction and turned it back on those who came to destroy his people. You know, it reminds me of that old cartoon Roadrunner. Do you remember Roadrunner? Some of you are probably too young for that. I, I actually went on YouTube and watched some Roadrunner clips just for, you know, my pastoral ministry to you. And uh, the Roadrunner was really fantastic, but you probably remember there's the Roadrunner who go like, meet, meet, you know, Roadrunner. And then there was Wiley Coyote who always set out to destroy the Roadrunner. And I remember, I remember cartoons where Wiley Coyote would put like roller skates on and he'd put a, put a missile on his back. And when the Roadrunner would come by, he'd, he'd light the fuse and then he'd take off and he'd go past the Roadrunner and they'd go off a cliff where the fuel would run out. And then, you know, he'd just drop and you're just, right? Do you remember that? I, I, I saw one where he was, uh, he was up on a cliff and he had a boulder, Wiley Coyote, and the Roadrunner was coming by. And so he rolled it down and the Roadrunner missed it. And, but it went up the other side of the road and curled back around and landed right back on top of Wiley Coyote. You see, the destruction was turned back on himself. That's what God is doing in this passage. Those who seek to destroy the people of God are themselves destroyed by the people of God. We see this at the cross as well. At the cross, Satan sought to destroy the Son of Man. And yet, in the greatest reversal in human history, Christ used the cross to crush the head of Satan by rising from the dead. Our God is a God who reverses destruction. Think of it on an eternal level. All of us deserve rightly, justly, the destruction of eternal hell. And yet God reverses that destruction and gives us eternal heaven. You can think of it even on a personal or testimonial level. Before I knew Christ, I was a very angry and bitter and self-focused person. And if God did not grab my heart and pull me to himself, I was on a path of destruction. But by the grace of God, through the Christ of God, he reversed my destruction. And I still got a long way to go. But I'm guessing many of you could share the same stories. Can you think of or imagine maybe where you would be if you did not know Christ? If God did not grab a hold of your heart, certainly it would not be a place that would be flattering. Because God reverses our destruction. And so first we see God reverses the fear of his people. Secondly, God reverses the destruction of his people. But thirdly, God reverses the sadness of his people. Back in Esther 4.3, it says, In every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews. 
with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. This was the state of the people of God. They were afraid for their lives. They were living in the shadow of destruction and overwhelmed by sadness. But our great God, who reverses fear and reverses destruction, also reverses the sadness of his people. Look in verse 17 through 19 with me. It says, this was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of fasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day, and on the 14th day, and rested on the 15th day because they had that 24-hour extension to defend themselves. It says, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Verse 19, therefore the Jews of the village who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting as a holiday and a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Friends, do you see what kind of God you have? A God who loves to lavish you with happiness. He turns his people from fasting into feasting from weeping into gladness, from sackcloth and ashes into a holiday. I mean, which one of you parents, when your child is is grieving and mourning, does not long for your child to have joy and gladness again? You know, when I was in college, my friend Tim, I remember Tim grew up, uh, he was a pastor's kid, and his father passed away tragically in an accident when he was in high school. And so there was a heaviness to Tim, which is definitely understandable when you go through something like that. But one day, I think it was our sophomore, junior year, I saw Tim in the quad uh, crossing past, and he was just like floating in the air. He was overjoyed. He was so happy and joyful. And I'm like, Tim, what's going on? He goes, I finally get it. I finally get it. Jesus died for me. Jesus loves me. I don't have to do anything. He cares for me. And he was so overwhelmed with the joy of the good news of the gospel. Friends, did you know, Christians, did you know that God is supremely concerned about your joy? A joyless Christian is a contradiction of terms. And yet often, if you're like me, there's times you walk around joyless. God is supremely concerned with your joy. You know, sometimes we think that God is a buzzkill. But God seeks to reverse our sadness into joy. Do you remember what the angel said at the birth of Jesus? The angel said to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, not just for the Jews. When Jesus commands his disciple or commands his disciples to be obedient to the commands of God, many times we think, oh man, that's heavy, that's a buzzkill, that's no fun, that's no happiness. And yet Jesus says this, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. When Jesus alludes to his coming resurrection. He says to his disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And then when Christ describes our entrance into heaven, he says, you will enter into 
the joy of your master. Christian, in the midst of a fallen world, there will be sadness. But even in the midst of sadness, we can have a joy that is untouchable because our God's love for us is secure, because our future is secure. God is extremely interested in your joy. That's why in the Bible, over 160 times, God commands his people to rejoice. That's a command of God. There is sadness and mourning in this world. But in Christ, there is a simultaneous joy and the hope of the gospel. And one day, one glorious day when Christ returns, all the sad things of the world will become untrue. And we will feast together at the wedding supper of the Lamb. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain, only gladness and joy, because God will make all things new. And he will forever reverse the sadness of his people into unfathomable joy. And so God reverses the fear of his people. Even today, he reverses our fear. God reverses the destruction of his people. God reverses the sadness of his people. But God also does more than that. God actually reverses the hearts of his people. In, in, that, in that movie, that greatest movie ever, Rocky IV, um, at the end of, of the match, uh, I think that's what it's called. And at the end of the match, at the end of the boxing, yeah, boxing match. At the end of the match, um, when Rocky is, you know, head blow, head blow, kidney shot, kidney, as he is taking down the Russian, something crazy starts to happen. The Russian crowd starts chanting, Rocky, Rocky, Rocky. And, the, and they're starting to go crazy. Their hearts are turning to cheer for Rocky. And, and then after the match, Rocky starts to give this speech. And uh, he says, uh, I'll try to do my best Rocky impersonation. He says, during this fight, I've seen a lot of changes. That's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah, all right, come on. And then he says, uh, that doesn't deserve applause, but thank you. <laughs> he says, if I can change and you can change, everybody can change. And then they all start clapping. They're excited. Even the Russian diplomats start clapping and standing ovation and their hearts are changed. It's one of the most amazing parts of the most amazing movie ever. In the book of Esther, what we see is God changes the hearts of his people. If you remember back in Esther chapter 2, we did not see a very flattering picture of Esther or Mordecai or the Jews. They hid their identity. They compromised their values. To, they sold out to the culture around them. And yet here in this passage, we see that God has changed his people. There's an important line that trickles throughout this passage in night, which says, even though they defeated their enemy, it says again and again, but they laid no hand on their plunder. Verse 10, verse 15 but they laid no hand on the plunder. Verse 16, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Why does the author point out three times that although they had victory over their enemies, they laid no hands on their plunder? It's because they knew throughout the Old Testament in a holy war to be faithful to God, you took none of the plunder but devoted it all to destruction. That was what Saul's failure was, wasn't it? Do you remember when the Malachites attacked? He took the plunder. But here we see God reversing the hearts of his people into faithfulness. And I don't know about you, but I find that to be so encouraging that God does not give up on his people, but that God works out their salvation in them. That God who has begun a good work in us will carry out until completion 
until the day of Christ Jesus. Let me end with just this encouragement for you to, to, to think about or maybe to discuss on the car ride home. The first two questions. One, how have you seen God's reversal in your life? Again, maybe think about what life would be like if you weren't a Christian. But the second is, where do you pray that God will continue to reverse your life? Because remember, God will complete the work that he has begun until the day of Christ Jesus. The Lord is a great reversal. He reverses our fear into faith, our destruction into deliverance, and our sadness into joy. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you don't just maintain the status quo, that you don't just let us, I guess, just, just ebb in our filth, but that you are continually reversing our hearts towards you, God. And so, Lord, we hand our hearts over to you and pray that you would grow us in joy regardless of our situation and that it would be for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.